Uh, if you're new to our church family this morning and uh, maybe you're visiting for whatever reason, we're really glad that you're here and glad that you chose to be here with us. Uh, we really, you know, we just try to keep the gospel above everything. And you see that woven throughout our music, certainly through baptism and the preaching of the word. I'll just echo what Pastor Chris said a moment ago, which is that, uh, you know, it's, it's a sad thing that you can hear a bunch of preaching and never hear the gospel. And so today we're not going to have that problem. All right. Uh, Acts chapter 6, uh, hopefully you're, you're getting there, and uh, we'll, we'll read there in just a moment. Uh, yesterday, for my family, was the first day that we went to the baseball field and got to see one of our kids play baseball uh, or softball, because ours have uh, not done that yet, and so yesterday was a big day for our family. We got to go out there. When I was sitting there watching the game, it brought back a lot of memories, you know, because I grew up playing baseball. Um, I was raised by a dad who loved baseball, and so uh, I, I went from t-ball and, and played for a few years. Um, I was raised to love baseball. I was a little guy, and you know I'm, I'm six feet tall now. But before uh, you know, God kind of developed my body to be a little bit taller. I was always the little guy, like always the little guy. Up until about tenth grade, I was always the littlest one. So uh, I was four foot eleven in ninth grade. So high school was great, as you can imagine. That started strong there. Um, and I was little, uh, when we played baseball, uh, I played um, in the two spot, I batted in the two spot. Uh, I was the guy that you just wanted to get on base. I could steal a base, played second base in center field. And so I was watching baseball yesterday. It just brought back all of those things. I remember one season, I think I was in fifth grade, and we, we often practiced, uh, you know, you just kind of pick a field and you just practice wherever you can, right? And it was like that where I was in Clinton, Mississippi as well. And the practice field that we, pl we practiced on, it was one that really should have been out of commission due to how poorly kept it was. And I remember one day we were at practice and I was playing second and uh, I took a hard hit grounder to the mouth and it, it just, it hit a rut. That's what I'm saying. It's not exactly the best kept. It hit a rut and it jumped up and, and hit me right in the face and uh, it swelled up and it was really painful. And I remember I had a big fat lip and everybody thought that was really funny for some reason. Um, and then the next practice, guess what? It happened again in the exact same place, the same exact thing. It jumped up and then popped me right in the mouth again. And I had a bad temper, so I threw my glove and screamed and all that stuff and got upset. Anyway, that same season, I also uh, got hit by a pitch eight times. We played eight games. <laughs> and I got hit by a pitch eight times. The fact that I still remember that should tell you something. That, that sort of was deeply ingrained in me. And I got upset, really, to be honest with you, because I didn't sign up to play baseball to get hit by the ball more than I hit the ball. And so I had a conflict. I was like, you know what, this is, this is not as fun as I'd like it to be, you know? And this conflict was, you know, at the end of the season, would I come back the next season made tougher by overcoming the conflict, or would I quit and let the conflict overcome me and become soft? So what do you think I did? I quit. And I switched to basketball, and that's why I am how I am now. Soft. Look, you know, I know that's joking and everything, but as a general rule, you know, how we respond to difficulty will either weaken us or it will strengthen us. It will either make us or it will break us. And that's true of silly things like baseball, because that's really meaningless, right, at the end of the day. It really is meaningless at the end of the day. But it's also true of much more serious matters. It's true of spiritual matters. It's true of really serious matters. How we respond to difficult things will make us or break us. And there's really not much in between. The passage we're looking at this morning in Acts chapter 6, we're going to see that the church, the early church, the New Testament church, 
the growth of the church is either going to be stunted or surged based on how it responds to internal struggles. And this is what we're going to see in our text. How would the early New Testament church handle caring for their own? How would they respond when they realized that they were doing poorly at it and they were dropping the ball? They're met with a crossroads, and so the church realized that for them to grow externally, to continue to multiply, the church needed to grow internally. How they handled things in their own hearts on the inside would dictate how they were able to multiply on the outside. It had to create, the church had to create, and the believers of the early church had to create and train up spiritual leaders. And so I'm going to tell you this this morning. Church growth is not a matter of strategies. It's not a matter of having big revitalization plans. You know what church growth is all about? Making disciples. It's about making disciples. And specifically, not just making converts, but making disciples who become spiritual leaders. And if a church is growing, but it is not making disciples and not creating spiritual leaders, you know it will stop happening. It will stop growing. So this morning, we have a very fitting passage ahead of us. I want to look at it with you and pull some neat observations, okay? Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. It says, Now in these days... When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. There's a neat um, sort of literature technique that's used in our passage. It's like, you ever seen like brackets? You see open bracket here and closed bracket here. In in literature, it's called an inclusio. And an inclusio is when you see something, a, a very clear open and close that binds a passage together. And in this passage, we have an inclusio. In verse 1, it's this idea of the church increasing. You can look down at it in verse 1. You can see the word increasing. And then in verse 7, you see the same thing, the word increasing. The reason I point that out is that those ideas are bracketed to show us something. And that is the increasing, the multiplied in verses 1 and verse 7. What's between there dictates whether what happens at the beginning will continue to happen at the end. They're increasing at the beginning. Then you have something that happens at the middle. And then they continue increasing. And the reason I point that out is to say you have growth, but then you have a conflict. And the way it is resulted or handled results in more growth. Continued external numerical growth through internal spiritual growth is what we're going to see. And it is tied to how they took care of their own. That's why I've titled today's message Growth Through Growth. And when you read that, you may think, what in the world are we getting at here? Because that's kind of confusing, right? But we're talking about two different kinds of growth. We have numerical growth on one side, but really it's more importantly dictated by what is happening inside, which is spiritual growth in God's people, growth through growth. And I say that then because we're going to say it for our church today. 
is that God produces growth in us and among us contingent on what the Holy Spirit is doing within us. So if you're taking notes this morning, I got a couple of main things that I'm gonna leave you with. Number one, if we're gonna see growth through growth, we're gonna have to step up and serve, fellowship. We're gonna have to step up and serve. If you haven't been able to tell, just by that one statement, um, this is gonna be a pastoral message. This is gonna be a pastoral message. To step up and serve. Verse one says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, here's the conflict, listen closely. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. You you could probably put this together just by reading that very clearly, that widows in this culture controlled little after their husbands died. They had little economic opportunity. They were vulnerable people, a vulnerable people group. And so what we've already looked at in the weeks past as we've gone from Acts chapter 1, verse 1, to where we are today, is that the daily distribution was the time that the people of God got together and they distributed their own goods. They would sell their things and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to those that had needs. We saw this in chapter 2. They had all things in common. We saw that it's in chapter 4. They had all things in common. What that means is that there were needy people among them, and the brothers and sisters among them said, we're going to meet those needs. And widows, obviously, would be at the top of the pecking order for needing lots of things. The daily distribution that's mentioned here piggybacks on what I mentioned a moment ago in Acts 2, 44 and 45. It says this, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, when that verse was given to us in Acts chapter 2, it says that the number of them was around 3,000 souls. By the beginning of chapter 4, the number had swelled to roughly 10,000. And what they're doing is they're putting the stuff at the disciples' feet, at the apostles' feet, and they say, okay, do with it what needs to be done. But can you just think for a second about that? How many apostles were there? Twelve. Ten thousand people. Can you imagine? That sounds like a bit of a logistical challenge, to say the least, yeah? And this is what the logistical challenge is in our passage. You know, one of the things we talked about back uh, many weeks ago when we were talking about Pentecost, would you put that map up there for me, please? This was the pa- a map that we looked at at Pentecost because it mentions all these people from all these different regions coming together at Pentecost, which was a Jewish feast, and they got together in Jerusalem, which was in Judea, which is where that flame is. But notice all those red uh, boxes with all those places around it. You got places that may sound familiar and some that may not sound familiar. But all the way up to the west was Rome. Now look, everything outside of Jerusalem or Palestine, we'll say, all the way stretching westward to Rome, which is a lot of, a lot of land, a lot of, a lot of empire there, right? Everyone that wasn't a, a Jewish, Aramaic-speaking person in that region was called a Hellenist. It means that their primary language was not Aramaic, which is what the, the Hebrews would speak, which were, are mentioned here, the Hebrews. Their primary language was not Aramaic, but it was Greek. And so many members of the early church were from Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, but many more were from as far away as Rome to the west, and those guys were called Hellenists. Now, what it says here is that you have the Hellenists' widows that are coming and speaking. Well, I guess the Hellenists are coming to speak on behalf of their widows and saying, hey, our, our people, the Greek speakers, the ones from, that not, aren't, aren't from around here, 
They, they, need, they have needs, and our widows are being neglected. Their widows are being taken care of. All of them t- taken care of. Even some of ours are taken care of, but our widows are being neglected. And it seems that the issue is not in willful, malicious, biased neglect, but rather in the language barrier. There's a language barrier. And maybe they can speak both, some of them, but primarily the language they spoke was Greek, the Hellenists, and the language of the others was Aramaic. You can go ahead and take that down. The daily distribution was naturally gravitating, in other words, toward a certain type of person, the ones that it was easy to, to reach. That's what it, what it was. They speak our language. They're like us. They kind of, they're easy to understand. We're going to just gravitate toward them. Look at verses 2 through 4. It says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. Now, remember, they've told us the full number. We're talking about 10,000 plus. The full number of the disciples then said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we, that is the apostles, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What we see here is when the church runs into an obstacle, the church comes together to overcome it. Now, it says we want to preach the word. It's not saying that serving tables is beneath them. That's not what they mean. It's not below them. But they have been called by Jesus to a very specific task. Acts 1.8, go and be my witnesses and preach. Go and preach the gospel. And they said that we were devoted to preaching and to prayer. And yet you have 12 men that are leading the spiritual development of thousands and the evangelism of tens of thousands. For them to continue doing what they were called to do, they needed to raise up additional leaders to do other things that they were not specifically called to do, which was to serve. It mentions that these guys that were selected were three things. It mentions they were of good repute, simply means men of character. And we won't go too much into that. You can read more about what it means for a man uh, that serves, a deacon, to be of character in 1 Timothy 3. It says that they were full of the Holy Spirit, which means they were believers who shared God's heart for people. It also says that they were full of wisdom, meaning that they were able to make decisions in a biblical and God-honoring way, which would be important considering they were doing the daily distribution of people. In verse 3, it says, the very end of verse 3, whom we will appoint to this duty. This duty is what is mentioned in verse 2, which is serve tables. Now, this is kind of interesting. The word here for serve tables or for serve, and the word for ministry in verse 4. Look at verse 4 where it says, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. The word for serve, meaning serve tables, and the word for ministry is the same root word. Will you put that slide up there, please? Yeah. So to serve is a verb in verse 2, and ministry is a noun in verse 4. And we read our Bibles in English, but in the original language, which was Greek, it would look like what you see on the far right up there. Sort of. That's a transliteration. It's pronounced like this, diakoneo and diakonia. You notice the first part of that sounds the same, and that's why I had it underlined. And if you were to kind of say that a little bit slower and put our vowel sounds on it, you know what it really would sound like? Deacon. That's where we get the word deacon from. What it's saying is we, we need people that are to serve. The verb, The verb to serve literally is the word deacon is what that means. The word is to deacon. We need people to deacon the tables. It also says, but we are going to devote ourselves to the, to the deacon of ministry and prayer. The reason I point that out is to say this same root word simply means to serve 
or to give yourself to the ministry. You can go to the next part there of that. To deacon, it means to minister. It means to serve. Now, when we think about deacon, you think about men, right? You think about guys that are appointed to a certain office, which these seven are going to be called, it seems, to that office, and they're going to lay hands on them. And that's true. But the word uh, diakoneo that I just read just a moment ago up there, to serve, that is the word that, that you and I would use to serve. It's, it's just, it's a very general term that means to serve. And so the reason I say that is to say, there is a difference between the office of deacon and the function of deacon. Does that make sense? There are some specific people that are called to the office of deacon. But every single person in this room, if you're a Christ follower, is called to the function of deacon. You see what I'm saying? A select few are called to the office. But there is no believer who is exempt from the call to serve. Amen? We're all called to do exactly what that word means. And we've taken that word and assigned sort of the specifics of the office. But to deacon literally means to serve, to take up the ministry. Our mind goes to a board of directors or decision makers. That is so contrary to what the Bible teaches about what it means to be a deacon. They're not decision makers. They're not guys that run the church. Deacons are by very nature to be servants. They're called to the ministry. And these deacons, servants, were called to the ministry of physical provision. The apostles were called to the ministry of the word. And so 12 apostles could not reach everyone in the Roman Empire, but they could train people who could help. Guys, not all are called to the office of deacon, but all believers everywhere are called to the function of deacon. And that means you, you are called to serve. We're called to serve the function. Fellowship, we are not just called to the ministry out there. We are called to the love and ministry and to meet the needs of our own in here. And I want you to notice something in our passage. That certain Christians were naturally gravitating toward a certain type of person. The Hebrew leaders, who were they gravitating to? Hebrews. They were gravitating toward people that looked like them, that sounded like them, that talked like them, that lived like them, and they would gravitate to them. But that's not what the church was called to be. The church was called to be, to call back to something we looked at in chapter 4 and 5, to be one heart and soul. Not to be a church of, we'll put it in our language, cultural cliques. But notice that that's exactly what inadvertently is at the heart of this church conflict. Cultural cliques. Let's just be, let's just be transparent here. <laughs> Some people are easier to connect with than others. There's a reason that you may be sitting by people you're sitting by. Because you have it, find it easier to connect to them. There also may be a reason why you don't know some of the names of the people around you. Maybe it's because you have a hard time connecting with them. Or maybe it's just because our church is busting at the seams and you have been outrun by the people that are here. I don't know what it is. But I will say, some people don't speak our language, so to speak. But we share the language of the gospel. The gospel service, which overcomes obstacles. There is a really neat word of application here. And there is nothing... Simply nothing that should divide you from a brother or sister in Christ. It doesn't matter if they look differently than you, come from a different socioeconomic class than you. It doesn't even matter if you speak a different language. There is simply no room in the church of Jesus Christ for cliques. There's no room for that. Because as soon as it happened, and I think it was inadvertent in our passage, they saw a problem and they said, we got to do better. People are being neglected, and they need to be loved on. 
these deacons were given the service of being given or giving provision at tables. The apostles were given a ministry of the word and of prayer. But all of us are given a ministry because all of us are called to serve, to deacon, to the function of a deacon. So, what is your ministry? And how are you using your ministry to love the people sitting around you right now? Maybe a hard question to answer. But every single person in this room is called to serve the people in this room. If this is your church family. We're called to serve one another. And how are you doing that? And if you're not doing that right now, just hear your pastor say, we need to start making some steps to step up and look for places that you can serve one another. Not because we want our structure or our organization to function well. We want us to be a biblical church. We want to be obedient to what God's instruction is for us. We need to step up. And by the way, that means you don't have to wait for an invitation to do so. Seek one out. Some of you guys have eyes to see needs. Um, I wrote down illustration. I never do this. I just wrote down illustration in green, which means to think of something on the spot. That's dangerous for me as you well know. I'll think of one right now. Um, several months ago, one of you guys, you know, I don't mind singling you now. It was you, Tony. I love you. I know you love the attention. He never smiles whenever I make jokes. It's okay. I'm not offended by it. Um, Tony saw a need. Every Wednesday night, I would scramble up until the point that I would begin to teach over there in the, in the dining area, and I would try to distribute the prayer lists. And one Wednesday, I went looking for them, and I couldn't find them at the same time that I would normally be looking for them. And you know where they were? In everybody's hands. That's just because Tony saw a need. And he said, there's a need. There's a way to serve the people. I'm going to go and serve the people. There are things that you guys do that I know nothing about. One of my favorite feelings as a pastor is when I am told that you guys have served one another in a way that I was totally unaware of. Because that is the church being the church. You don't have to be a Sunday school teacher. You don't have to have some official position to serve the body. You can walk up to somebody and say, can I take that to the trash can for you? Can I, hold, can I hold your baby? You look like you're ready for a break. You see what I'm saying? We're called to serve one another, church. And if you're not doing that, I simply would implore you, ask God for eyes to see needs, for eyes to see ways that you can love one another, to step up and serve. Because this is what we're called to. Maybe not the office of deacon, but we're all called to the function Church needs that arise will either be obstacles or opportunities, depending on how you and I respond to them. Are we going to wait for somebody else to step up, or are we going to be the ones to step up and serve? I would encourage you to do so. The second thing is to grow up and lead. To grow up and lead. <clears throat> this is the one that I'm more excited to talk about. By the way, when I say lead, I, again, don't mean someone that's in authority or power we're all called to lead. We're all called to be spiritual leaders, okay? Not Sunday school teachers necessarily, not, not you know, pastors necessarily, not uh, people that are in control of committees or whatever. That's, that's not what I mean. I'm talking about we're all called to be spiritual leaders who look at those who are less mature or less far along in their faith than we are and say, let me love you and embrace you and show you how you also can be a spiritual leader. Leader. Guys, if this church is not full of spiritual leaders, we have a big, big problem. And I'm not talking about Sunday school teachers. I'm talking about leaders. Look at verses 5 and 6. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. 
And they chose Stephen, a man <clears throat> full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon. I always want to say Timon, like from The Lion King. And Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Definitely, by the way, had to practice those names before showtime today. Verse 6. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Notice it says in verse 3, the beginning of verse 3, to pick these guys out from among yourselves. Uh, the apostles are not choosing them, in other words. This is an early example of church governance. You know those business meetings that we have where the church makes decisions on behalf of the church? It's a biblical model. You don't want me to be a dictator or some committee to run things in our church because the church is leading the church. You see that? That's kind of neat, right? Church governance. They select Hellenists, by the way, to meet a Hellenistic need. These guys' names are all uh, not Jewish names. They're Greek names, which tells us the ones that they appointed were the ones that would have the heart for the thing. They would have the heart for these widows that, that need to be loved on. And so they lay hands on them to commission them for ministry, which is why we lay hands on people that are called to the ministry and to the ministry of the deacon. And so they do the same here. Notice the apostles were not dictators in the early church. They were raising up leaders from within. And that's exactly why we're going in this direction. Look at verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly, also increased in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, I'm actually not going to spend a lot of time on that last part, but I mentioned it before already. But when it says a great many of the priests came obedient to the faith, what it means is that as a result of the priests looking on, by the way, these are likely even perhaps members of the Sanhedrin who have been very oppositional to the early church, but at the very least, they're guys that are very familiar with the temple and seeing these guys teaching. These priests come to know Jesus, which is so powerfully profound that they saw the way that they served and said, there's something special happening here. The Spirit is moving here, and so they came to believe. That's just a disclaimer. What I want to actually point out from this is the very first word of verse 7. In the ESV, which is the translation that I'm using today, it's the word and. It's not always translated the word and, though. It's the word in Greek that, can't, that is often translated and, but it can also indicate the result that proceeds from the previously stated action, meaning that it can be translated something like now or so. The reason that's important is that it's building on what came right before it. So it's saying this thing happened as a result of the way that this thing went down. Conflict rose. They solved this issue. They solved it well. And as a result of that, this is what we see. Increase is what we see. The result of the church taking care of issues pertaining to care for their own through new leaders stepping up is that the word of God, to use the word here in verse 7, the word of God increased. Literally means that it grew. It's different than the increase in verses 1 and in verse 7. Verse 1 it says they increased in number. That's the church number. In verse 7, the second part it says the number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem. Those two examples of the word increase or multiply, again it's the same Greek word. This is really, can I just nerd out for a second? Is that okay with y'all? Nerd out for just a second. Verse 1, it says the number of the church increased. The word in Greek there doesn't refer to a general increase. It refers to specifically a numerical increase. In verse 7, the second part, it says <clears throat> the number of the, the Christians greatly multiplied. It doesn't say increased, but it's the same Greek root word. It means numerically they grew in number. 
But the other word in verse 7 that is translated to increase, the word of God continue to increase, that is not the same Greek word. And that Greek word does not mean numerical increase. It'd be the difference between saying uh, a crowd multiplied and a plant grew. You see what I'm saying? This is referring to an organism, something that doesn't grow numerically, but it simply grows. It increases, like your body, from childhood to adulthood. It increases. Here's why that's important, is that what this is saying is the Word of God didn't multiply numerically. The Word of God, it grew and it spread far and wide. But listen, it also took root and grew within their church. The numerical growth that they experienced, it was a product of the spiritual growth within their church. Their numerical growth was only a result of their personal spiritual growth, the message taking root within them. Guys, can you just please hear me say this? Numerical growth often corresponds to growth in obedience to serve those in need among us. Please listen. This section is not about church numbers increasing and caring for widows. It is about church numbers increasing through caring for widows. Their number is increasing because they are a healthy church. Their number is increasing because when faced with a crossroads of conflict, they decided we're going to do the right thing. We're going to overcome cultural barriers. We're going to overcome the societal clique, if you want to put it that way. And instead, we're going to humble ourselves and do the right thing, which is to appoint and train up new leaders. That's why that end is so important. Because what it's saying is the result of them handling this situation and serving one another and loving one another and growing spiritually within resulted in explosive growth. A church that serves together surges forward together. Pretty cool passage in light of what we did yesterday. A church that serves together surges forward together. Making disciples who make disciples. And that's why I'll emphasize once again that this is not about making converts. They could not simply make converts. They had to train up leaders, not decision makers, spiritual leaders in their body. Every week that I've looked at, at uh, all right, let me just tell you something. This is my process whenever I prepare sermons. Well, it takes a good while. It, I, I'm usually 10 to 12 hours a week on, on this message. And um, sometimes it's a lot more than that. And, you know, today, um, God was, was gracious with what we have today. I'm going to give you a, a pull back the curtain a little bit for my process. What I've done in the book of Acts so far is I'll read the passage several times and decide sort of where we're going to break it. Um, obviously prayerfully do so. And uh, as I read it five or six times, I'll make notes as I'm physical notes in my Bible as I'm reading it. And then uh, before I consult any commentary, which trust me, you're thankful that I consult commentary at the end. Um, before I do that, though, I start to write my own, usually 
whether it be John or Hebrews or many of the ones I've done before this, I would write my own commentary. I think this verse says this, and it means this, and maybe we could apply it this way. This verse means this, says this, and maybe group a couple of verses, but that's the way that I do it. I'll write my own commentary, and then I'll go and consult other commentary, people that have studied the word far more in depth than I have, and I'll learn from them. And then at the very end of all that, I'll put together a message, and then I'll bring it to you guys. It takes a lot of time. But for Acts, so far, I have done something very different, and it makes me uncomfortable because it's different. I have, uh, instead of writing a commentary, means this, means this, means this, apply it this way, illustrate, whatever. I've just read the passage many times and then written a sermon. I've written a skeleton of a sermon. And it's not finished, far, far from finished. But then I go to commentaries and I'll consult commentaries and I'll find that I actually was on the right track, which is pretty rare. But in Acts, it's been true, is that what I've written down has been really good to, to go on. And then I'll kind of plug in some gaps and things from there. But guess what? This week was different. This week, I went and read Acts 6, 1 through 7. And I knew that's where I was supposed to break it. And um, I was like, I don't know what to talk about. I'm not really sure what to say here. There's nothing profound I didn't feel like. And um, while the Spirit has been generous quickly in this book so far, this passage wasn't like that. I didn't know what to do other than to praise our deacons. Uh, and you guys have great deacons. I wanted to praise our deacons and tell you that, that as a church family, we've got it good. We've got it really good. God has been very gracious to our church family, and you have wonderful deacons that serve uh, this body. And uh, I'll say more about that in a moment. And then I started to consult the commentaries, like I told you a minute ago. And I found something in there that just really opened my eyes to a whole lot that's going on here. And it was that word inclusio. It was the brackets that I mentioned just a moment ago. That you see the church increasing, and then a conflict, and then the way they handle the conflict, a solution, and as a result, more increasing. And specifically what I read about was that if not handled the right way, the increase would have stunted. What I read was, the growth that they experience is a result of the growth that they experience on the inside. Guys, can I just bring this home for just a moment? Fellowship was a very healthy church before I got here in summer 2020. A very, very, very healthy church. And the biggest indicator of that, and, and I've talked about this with several of you, Sam and I talked about this quite often, the biggest indicator of that health was the deacon body. Because it's very rare, in a, especially Southern Baptist Church, that deacons, I know this, this should not sound as revolutionary as it's about to, but it's very rare in Southern Baptist churches for deacons to be deacons. Usually they don't function as biblical deacons. They function as elders and decision makers like a board of directors. But that's not what God called deacons to do. As I told you a moment ago, deacons are called to serve the body and lead, but not lead through decision making. They lead through service. And so when I got to fellowship, I was just so blessed because immediately the deacons were great deacons. Immediately. And on top of that, not just the office of deacon, but the church itself took up the function of deacon. You guys serve. I could look at something like Awana and think, wow, this is a serving church. Because if it's not a serving church, there ain't no Awana. But it is a serving church. And therefore, Awana has been something on Wednesday nights that has so blessed our kids. But now we've got a problem, a big problem. It's a great problem, but it's a problem. And that is that our number is rapidly increasing. 
And with a rapid increase in our number, you know what we can't do? We can't look back to 2020 and think, we're good. We got some good volunteers. Because those volunteers, it's grown beyond what they can do. So you know what has to happen? What happens in Act 6? You train up leaders. And more people step up, and more people grow up. And the way that we respond to conflict dictates what happens next. We're having rapid increase. And we're going to see what happens next. In one of the commentaries that I was studying, I read this quote. It says, as every pastor who has seen growth in his church knows, it brings new blessings and new challenges. Will the church keep their priorities straight? Guys, at Fellowship, we have a lot of new believers. We also have newly renewed believers. Those that are taking this seriously for the first time, which is awesome, right? Am I right? I mean, isn't that amazing? What a blessing. But with that means that we have a lot of people that are very young in the faith. We've got converts, but we need to be making disciples. We need to train them and grow them and lead them and then teach them to grow and be leaders themselves. And one of my biggest concerns lately, and I've had talks with Sam, Pastor Sam, about this. I've had talks with with my spouse, with, with Brooke over this. And I've had talks with many of you over this. And that is that I'm, I'm, I'm a little afraid. If I could be translated, I told you it was going to be a pastoral sermon. I'm a little afraid. Because, and Kevin mentioned this a few weeks ago. He stood right here and he mentioned that my time is being spent right now pinning my ears back and trying to run as fast as I can forward to catch up with the growth. Because I've got people that are asking about membership and asking about baptisms. And those are people that are sort of renewing and making a commitment. And it's, they're new to this church family, if not new to the church family altogether. And with that, brings some difficulty. Because now, we've been doing that for a year, you know, just trying to keep up. And um, I looked around recently and realized that we have a very high number of folks that need discipleship. And I'm really grateful that Sam is on full time because he's going to help a lot with that. But I'm going to be honest with you guys. I'm afraid of letting you fall through the cracks and failing to disciple you. Because just as 12 was not enough for 10,000, two is not enough for 300. So I need help. I need your help. The health of this church is not going to rise and fall on two guys, three guys. It's not going to rise and fall on that. Because I don't just need your help. They need your help. The people around you need you to be a growing believer. The people around you need you to be a spiritual leader. Because we cannot be, please hear me say this, fellowship cannot refuse to let our church be a mile wide and an inch deep. I refuse to let that happen. We will not be a mile wide and an inch deep where your only spiritual leaders are the ones that are given a microphone or a classroom to talk. 
Those are not going to be our only spiritual leaders. They're going to be spiritual leaders that never speak a word, but do all the things with their hands and feet. They're going to be spiritual leaders that you never see out there, but you see behind the scenes doing all kinds of things. They're going to be spiritual leaders that don't show it, but are in a closet praying feverishly on their knees for God's church to grow and grow and grow. They're going to be spiritual leaders that you may not see serving, but are forever serving. You're going to be spiritual leaders that are even in this room crying out with their voices and praising God and looking around, how can I love the people around me? Spiritual leaders that never ask for any credential, never ask for any praise from man, and yet do it for the praise of one. Guys, this church has to be full of people like that. Otherwise, we're going to be a mile wide and an inch deep. We need spiritual leaders. And I don't mean, I'm just emphasizing this, we don't need decision makers. We need servants who love the people sitting around you. And I need you to do something for me. I need you to care. I need you to try. I'm not asking you to conquer Rome in a day. I'm asking you to care. I need you to look around with me and see the dilemma that we're in. we got a lot of people that are young in the faith that think, I don't know how to read my Bible. How do you read and understand this? And maybe you know how to understand it. And you can teach them. That's not one guy's job. That's our job. To make disciples. But you have to decide that you are ready to take your faith seriously and grow. How do you do that? There's a lot of ways to do that. First of all, you need to be in a Sunday school class. You need to be in a Sunday school class. If you're not, you're perpetuating the problem. You're just perpetuating the problem. And I'm not saying that that is the, the one check that box and all is fixed. I'm saying that you're doing harm to yourself by not deciding, I'm going to take the very easy step of coming an hour early and growing. That's an easy one, man. That's like passively going to produce some growth. And you can do that. I'm not asking you to be the one talking. I'm asking you to just come and sit under the teaching and learn and grow. You really need to consider small groups. If you can make small groups happen, you really need to make small groups happen. Men, we have small groups for you. Women, we have small groups for you. If you have questions about that, I'm going to be out there in the gathering space, and I'll point you in the right direction. We have, and you don't have to decide on one right away. Try, try a couple of our small groups out and just see what, what you think. But you need to be in a small group because it's one thing to feed your mind. You know, Sunday mornings are, are about growing our knowledge of the Word. Small groups on Sunday nights or wherever they, whenever they may meet are, are not really about so much growing the mind and our knowledge of the Word, but about deepening our community with one another. And yes, there is some knowledge of the word that is obviously going to be spread around. But we're really trying to deepen the roots of community. Sunday school and small groups are not just there for you to fill up your head, though. They're to expand and grow what God is doing in your heart. Because you need to be a spiritual leader. I need you to not just plug into Sunday school or small groups, but to care about serving. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. He said it is better to serve than to be served. You are doing yourself a great disservice by not serving. I've never had one person look back on a day that they served and said, I wish I had that time back. But I have countlessly heard people say, I need to serve more. Why didn't I do that today? I just decided I'd take the day off and not do it. A lot of regret on that side of the fence, but not the other. I need you to serve together. When we do these service projects, we're doing that on a purpose, you know. We want to create and facilitate and foster an identity in our church of serving. You know why? Because the way that they served dictated what happened next, whether they would grow. 
And this may be a little uncomfortable for you, but Jesus' model for discipleship was very intimate relationships with a small handful of group of people. You need to be discipled. You need to have someone in your life that you talk about, about your spiritual life, and you confess sin, and that teaches you how to understand what's going on in your life from a biblical worldview. You know what you call that as a mentor. And every person in this room, this one included, needs someone in his or her life that they can look to and say, teach me how to be more mature than I am right now. Teach me how to grow in my faith in a way that I'm not there yet. Because if we're going to raise up leaders, we got to raise up leaders. And I'll also say that many of you need to just step up to the plate and be a, and, and be a mentor. And decide that you don't have to know everything to know something. And that you can look around at new faces that are new to our church family. And they don't know the things that you know. They don't know the word, the way that you know the word. They don't know the maturity and the walk with the, light, walk with the Lord that you have known for many years. But they can learn from you. But that requires two willing parties. I'd also really encourage you to grab a study Bible. It all comes back to knowing God's word. An ESV study Bible would do so much good for so many of you. It's good for me. I use my ESV study Bible every time I study the Word, and I learn so much. And by the way, I'll just say it doesn't have to be a church-sanctioned event for two or three of you to decide you're going to study the Word and pray together. In fact, I'd say it needs to not just be a church-sanctioned event. You need to be able to get together with people in your life and study the Word and pray together. I need you to. I need you to. Because I can't do it by myself. I need you to. They need you to. We need you to. And one more thing I'll add to that is to read other books than your Bible or listen to them. Your Bible is obviously the most important book you will ever read. But God's word, although all sufficient, the contents that you hear every Sunday would suffer drastically if all I used to prepare this message was my Bible. Because I've learned so much from people who have taken something that I've read many times and helped me to understand it even more and to grow as a result of that. There's a lot that I just said that maybe you don't do. And it may be time to step up. It may be time to grow. You know, the temptation of chapter 6, we're almost done. The temptation of chapter 6 was to let the obstacles keep them from growing as one and overcoming their obstacle. But numerical growth would come through spiritual growth. Church, it is time to step up and serve, to grow up and lead. And so I'll ask you this question. What are you going to let stop you from choosing to be more than a casual Christian. The formula, the inclusio, was church growth, conflict. Whether it's resolved or not will determine whether or not church growth happens on the other side. And not to be overly dramatic, but here's my challenge to you. Thinking of the mile wide and inch deep thing, you need to either choose to grow or get ready to see this church stop growing. Choose to grow. Or get ready to see all, see all this 
stop. This is the story of the book of Acts. How they responded to the conflict would determine what happened next. How will you respond? You know, spiritual growth flows downstream, not from being full of good intentions or full of social skills. It flows downstream of being full of the Spirit. Notice that when it says they needed, these guys that they appointed to this office, they needed to be full of the Spirit of God. Guys, it is the heart of our God in us that should prompt us to serve and to lead the ones that Jesus came to serve and to lead. And to be full of the Spirit of God, you first must understand that you have a sin problem. You have to understand that Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He meant to come to take dead people and bring them to life. And today in this room, it may be your story that your next step is not to plug in and serve the church. Your next step may be to be part of the church. And I don't mean to put yourself on a membership role. I mean to say, God, I want to be part of this church family, the family of believers who have been made clean from their sin and have been given new eternal life. There's only one way that can happen, and it's not because of a pastor, and it's not because of some other staff member or ministry leader. It's because you have made a profession of faith in Jesus to take away the sin that you so desperately need to be removed from your life and give you newness of life. This outward demonstration points to a greater inward transformation. And my encouragement to you is before true spiritual growth can happen is to make the main thing the main thing and make Jesus your Lord and your Savior.